Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about Australian businessman, the late Kerry Packer, at one point Australia's richest and most influential man. So Kerry Packer was born Kerry Francis Bulmore Packer on the 17th of December 1937 in Sydney. His father was Sir Frank Packer, an Australian media proprietor who controlled Australian Consolidated Press and the Nine Network. His mother, Gretel Bullmore, was the daughter of Herbert Bullmore, the Scottish rugby union player. He also had an older brother, Clyde Packer, which I'll get into in a little bit. He took part in various sports at school, including boxing, cricket and rugby, though he struggled academically, possibly due to undiagnosed dyslexia, which pretty much, the way I understand it, dyslexia is where you have difficulty being able to read because different letters and numbers look different. Packer's primary schooling suffered greatly when he was struggling with a severe bout of, and I do apologise because I'm going to butcher this, poliomyelitis at age eight, and he was confined to an iron lung for nine months. His father apparently thought little of his son's abilities, once cruelly describing him as, and I quote, the family idiot, end quote. Although Kerry subsequently steered PBL to heights far beyond anything his father or brother ever achieved, the nickname his father gave Kerry made him strive to new heights in schooling, trying to achieve A grades. His end-of-year report said he was one of the most notable students, and in an interview former employee Trevor Stike stated that, and I quote, he didn't read much on the printed page. If you didn't want Terry to read something, you wrote more than a one-page memo, end quote. The funny thing about Packer's father is that his father had quite a few funny moments himself. For example, Frank Packer once fired an employee for wearing a red cardigan and saying that he had changed and become a communist, and because of that he was fired, simply for wearing something red. I mean, if you were to do something like that these days, you would have so many lawsuits up your ass, you wouldn't even be able to wait through all of the crap that was coming away. I mean, simply firing someone because they wore a red cardigan. That's absolutely insane. Like, I can just imagine the discrimination lawsuits, the unfair dismissal lawsuits, like, just the absurd amount of lawsuits that would come your way if you were to do something like that today. He then reached new heights when he came into work one day and saw a male employee engaged in conversation with his female receptionist. He went up to him and asked how much he got paid per week, and the guy replied 30 bucks. Frank allegedly then pulled out, like, a wad of cash, shoved it in his hand, and goes, there's four weeks pay, you're fired. Then before the guy could get the hell out of Dodge, he goes, which department are you from? Just so I can let them know that you've been fired. And the guy goes, oh, I don't work here, I'm the delivery boy. I love these stories, they're so hilarious. Like, and this is just what Packer's father did. I'm not, I haven't even gotten to the funny stuff that Kerry Packer has done. Packer's grandfather, Herbert Bullmore, represented the Scottish National Rugby Union team in an international match against Ireland and Dublin in 1902 and worked as a doctor in Sydney for many years. Kerry Packer and his wife were 42 years, Rosalind Packer AC, had two children, a daughter Gretel, and a son James. Packer conducted extramarital affairs with a number of women, including the model Carol Lopez, who reportedly committed suicide after being shunned by Packer, publisher and former Con Press employee Ita Buttrose, and Julie, and I'm going to butcher this last name, I do apologise, Tree Thoan, his longtime mistress and manager from 1983 of the Packer-owned Sydney Health and Fitness Club, the Hyde Park Club. After his death, the Sydney Morning Herald reported that from about 1995, Packer trans transferred control of multi-million dollar Sydney real estate holdings to 3 Owen. Packer, through his family company, Consolidated Press Holdings, was the major shareholder with a 37% holding in publishing and broadcasting limited, PBL. Until Packer's death, PBL owned the Nine Television Network and Australian Consolidated Press, which produces many of Australia's top-selling magazines. He was involved in a number of other gambling and tourism ventures, notably Crown Casino in Melbourne, the Nine Network and Australian Consolidated Press businesses have since divested to PBL Media. Packer was widely respected in business circles, courted by politicians on both sides, and was widely regarded as one of the most astute businessmen of his time, despite having been a poor student. Now, I can contest to that because I've listened to, and I'm going to play it later on in the podcast, I've listened to arguments when he was, I think he was hauled before a commission that was looking into his taxes and how he wasn't paying much tax. I don't want to cast aspersions too quickly and foreshadow, but I know that he was very, very smart, and the way that he says it, I have a sound clip I'm going to play later, like he talks about 
taxes and, and how, you know, he pays a minimal amount of tax for a reason, and I believe that reason. There's another sound clip I'm going to play where he was on a, a show and there was about four or five people that were gunning for him and was kind of against him. And I mean, he stood up to four or five people and held his own in an argument against four or five people. I don't know that many businessmen or hell, I don't even know that many people that could get into an argument with five on one and walk out of there as if it was water off a duck's back. Like, it's incredible to me that he was able to hold his own the way that he did. I watched the whole interview. It was like a 20-minute interview. I'll play a short clip of it later on. And he just manages to rebuff everything that they say and hold his own in that argument. It was absolutely incredible. Kerry Packer, honestly, from the small snippets I've seen of various arguments and, and debates and, and questions that people ask him on controversial topics, he manages to hold his own. And he's a, he was a very astute businessman, although he was involved in a lot of controversy, which, again, we're going to get into. And the thing is, although Packer's reputation as an astute businessman was legendary and he made some good investments he was by no means a self-made man his grandfather Robert Clyde Packer and his father Sir Frank Packer had built up the media empire and its related holdings over many decades the interesting thing though as pointed out by news outlet crikey if a hundred million had been invested in the Australian share market in September of 1974 through a balanced portfolio of the top 200 companies that portfolio would be worth more than 6.9 billion in December of 2005 and possibly would have been worth as much as a $11 billion. Packer also controlled Nine Network and Nine's wide world of sports in the 1980s and famously sold the network to Alan Bond and then bought it back three years later for less than a quarter of the price. The Sydney Morning Herald was quoted as saying that, and I quote, Packer's decision to sell Nine to Bond in 1987 for $1.2 billion before buying the network back in 1990 for $250 million is legendary in Australian television, end quote. Moreover, Packer was not the first choice to take over the running of the family's business empire. His father, had intended that Kerry's older brother Clyde Packer would take over the company but Clyde fell out with his father in the early 1970s and left Australia permanently. The fallout as I understand it was the result of the fact that in 1970 Clyde Packer became a joint managing director of the Nine Network with his father Frank. Clyde later recalled on this on the topic and I quote, it was a very equitable arrangement. I had the responsibility and he had the authority. End quote. Late in the next year, Clyde Packer launched a current affair on the Nine Network with Mike Willisey hosting. In 1972, Willisey organised for a current affair to have an on-air interview with then-union leader Bob Hawke, who also later on became Australian Prime Minister, during an industrial dispute. Now, when Frank heard of the argument, he vetoed the decision to allow Hawke on his network, the reason for which remains unknown, and also this undermined Clyde's authority. Willisey later declared, and I quote, You can't run a current affairs programme as you couldn't run a serious newspaper and have people tell you can't have the leader of the trade union movement on, end quote. Packer resigned his post at the Nine Network and ACP and later reflected on the split, and I quote, I suspect my father was as glad to get rid of me as I was to get rid of him. End quote. Their public falling out followed years of tight control by Frank. According to Paul Barry, and he quoted, Clyde Packer was also frequently dressed down and abused in public by his father, Sir Frank, into his late 30s. Clyde was still treated like a stupid, disobedient little boy until he could take no more and rebelled against such tyranny, splitting clearly and completely with his father. End quote. On his father's death in May of 1974, the family estate valued at 100 million Australian dollars passed directly to Kerry. In 1976, Clyde sold his court a share of the family business for four million Australian dollars to Kerry, who went on to become Australia's richest man. Further, his principal Australian investments in television and casinos were highly protected from competition by government regulation, which Packer and his employees worked very hard to have maintained. The Packer family's business reputation suffered a blow following the 2001 collapse of OneTel, a telephone company in which his son James had invested. Kerry Packer was also one of Australia's largest landholders. In 2003, a deposit of rubies was discovered on one of his properties. The Packer the media empire included magazines, television networks, telecommunications, petrochemicals, heavy engineering, a 75% stake in the Perisher Blue ski resort, diamond exploration, coal mines and property, a share in the Foxtel cable TV network, and investments in the lucrative casino business in Australia and overseas. So, I mean, Packer had a massive media empire. I mean, he had shares in just about everything, and it's absolutely incredible how he was able to amass such an empire. It's incredible. Now we move on to Packer 
Packer's gambling, and this is where some of the most incredible stories about Kerry Packer actually stem from, and I'm actually amazed that he was able to do a lot of what he did in the gambling world. So, Packer was a long-time heavy smoker and an avid gambler, fabled for his large wins and losses. Some of his gambling stories became the stuff of legend. For example, in 1999, a three-day losing streak at London casinos cost him almost 28 million Australian dollars, the biggest reported gambling loss in British history. Once, he won 33 million Australian dollars at the MGM Grand Casino in Las Vegas, and that he often won as much as 7 million each year during his annual holidays in the UK. Packer's visits were a risky affair for the casinos, as his wins and losses could make quite a difference to the finances of even the biggest of casinos. Packer was also known for his sometimes volcanic temper and for his perennial contempt for journalists who sought to question his activities. Packer is quoted for an exchange in a poker tournament at the Stratosphere Casino, and this is one of the most famous of stories about Kerry Packer. So apparently when he was there, this Texan oil investor was attempting to engage him in a game of poker, and upon the Texan saying, and I quote, I'm worth 60 million, end quote, Packer apparently pulled out a coin and asked him nonchalantly, heads or tails, referring to a $120 million wager. Now that's according to Bob Stupak's autobiography. There are other variations of the story that put the sum at 60 million to 100 million, and the line was, I'll toss you for it. Now to someone like Kerry, 60 million was a drop in the bucket at this point in time. I mean, he could lose that much money in a week and still have enough cash to run his business interest for quite a long time. In the late 1990s, he walked into a major London casino and played 15 million pounds on four roulette tables on his own and lost it all. And this has been confirmed by casino owners in southeast of England. The Ritz Hotel in London even had its own room for Kerry Packer. There he was able to play blackjack with a minimum bet of 10,000 pounds per hand. He once lost more than 19 million pounds in this room alone. There were even stories about him paying $200,000 a hand of Baccarat and paying off dealers mortgages. That's how incredible his spending was. Now, Packer was an interesting businessman insofar as he was always involved in some type of controversy, whether it be taxes or investigations against organized crime, which he somehow got swept up into at least one royal commission into the subject, which I'm about to get into. Packer's name was always linked or tacked onto something, and a majority of the time he got away from the spotlight, but there are some mysteries surrounding Kerry Packer that to this day have never been explained. For example, Packer faced a 1991 Australian government inquiry into the print media industry with some reluctance but great humour. When asked to state his full name and the capacity in which he re appeared, he replied, Kerry Francis Bournemouth Packer. I have appeared here reluctantly, end quote. Packer fronted the inquiry over allegations that he had some secret control over the content of the Fairfax Papers, an organisation that Packer had wished to purchase for some time but was restricted from by cross-ownership laws. During the inquiry, he repeatedly berated the politicians conducting it and the government. When asked about his company's tax minimisation schemes, he replied, and I quote, Of course I'm minimising my tax, and if anybody in this country doesn't minimise their tax, they want their heads read. Because as a government, I can tell you, you're not spending it that well that we should be donating extra. Here is a sound clip of that exchange. There's nothing wrong with minimising tax. I don't know anybody who doesn't minimise their tax. And that you were doing so in, in ways that were, that were contrary to the spirit of the law. Oh. Well, I just got through telling you what I thought about that. I am not evading tax in any way, shape or form. Now, of course I am minimising my tax, and if anybody in this country doesn't minimise their tax, they want their heads read. Because as, as a government, I can tell you, you're not spending it that well that we should be donating extra. Packer was a fiery debater who never backed down from a challenge and was ruthless with those who challenged him. In a 1991 ACA debate about his Fairfax dealings, Packer was attacked from all sides, but he held his own and was not one who withered away from accusations or from a fight. Here's another sound clip of that exchange. Yes, Mr Packer, you've had a pretty impressive record in TV and magazines. Uh, you've brought a lot of new ideas, a lot of innovation. What sort of new ideas would you like to bring to Fairfax? Well, I mean, I've just got through telling you that I'm not going to be in a position to bring anything to Fairfax beyond the equity of 15%. I'm not going to be on the board of Fairfax and I'm not going to run Fairfax. But you must, personally, you've got a lot of ideas. You've worked in media for a long time. What do you think of the Fairfax newspapers? Well, as I say, I'm not going to have an effect on them. Now, if you want to ask me about what I feel about newspapers, what I, how I run my business, I'm quite happy to answer those questions. Well, that's the question I was asking. As the person who's going to be a major shareholder in no, the company, what are, you, what are your views about the Fairfax I don't have any views about Fairfax as a major shareholder, because I'm not a major shareholder. Well, as a person who's been in the media for many years, what are, what are your views about the Fairfax papers? I think they're great traditions. I don't think they're necessarily being well enough served at this moment in time by some of the things that are happening there. 
but I think they have a great tradition and a great reputation. And I think they will go on, as long as they're properly nurtured and looked after, to even, even more greatness. And how could we make them better? Well, we could obey the uh, AJO code of ethics to start with, couldn't we? You think it's been breached? I'm sure it's been breached. Have you got examples of that? Or you? Well, why don't you read just the first section of it? Yeah, I've read it often. What are you referring to? Well, why don't you read that out so everybody can make their own decision? There's the AJA code of ethics. Yeah, I've read it often. Why don't you read it to the public because they've never heard it. Just the first... Uh, just the first. Well, well, Mr Packer, what, what's the point you're making there? My point is that the way this has been handled, the big lie, and I've noticed we're not going to get it read, the big lie which is being put forward by the Fairfax organisation, that I am going to control it, is in direct contravention with the AJA Code of Ethics. I am not going to control Fairfaxes. Please tell me how I am. If you believe it, tell me how. Where's the big lie being put? Can you put some examples in Fairfax copy and Fairfax cover this issue? Well, I noticed a picture in the paper the other day with posters of the age. What right have you, the Friends of Fairfax, got to use posters of the age? I mean, you, this is an official journal of John Fairfax. No, I don't really follow the point. Yeah, I asked you for examples where Fairfax I'm papers... There is a paper, there is a, there is a picture in yesterday's paper or today's paper where you are all having a, a meeting, putting forward a point of view which is completely and absolutely dishonest. The, in that painting, in that uh, picture, there are posters of John Fairfax and so Now, will you read the thing? Could I ask you... Uh, no, well, can I, you've all asked me something. Well, that's why don't you read it to a program. I'm, I'm more than happy to read it. <laughs> well, I've read okay, it a thousand times. But why don't you read it out so the public let's, can hear let's it? Let's establish what, what point we're making, Mr Packer. You, are, you call it the big lie. You believe yes, that the Fairfax Press is lying about your interests in, in the terrain bit. I believe Fairfax Press is lying when it tries to present, which it constantly does, the bid of Turang as being my bid and that I will control it. All right, now, well, let's, let, let's who, move who, on. Alan, Alan, Alan. Who, who is the controller of Turang? Will you read not? that out? Which you're very reluctant to do. Well, now, this is your read read I'm more than happy to read it. All members of the Australian Journalist Association are pledged to stand by their fellow members in observing and enforcing the AJ Code of Ethics. No. Point one. Well, it goes on and on. No, just know. point one. It's got one there beside it. We shall be scrupulous in reporting the news. Perhaps I could ask you to have a Continue. look at the charter Continue. which Continue. the age Continue. produced. Continue. The age reporting the, the news and going on and go on. Sir, can I ask you, back in 1988... Please look one thing at a time. Why don't you read out what you're supposed sure, to have? Sure, they shall report and interpret the news with scrupulous honesty by striving to disclose all essential facts all essential and by facts. not suppressing relevant and available facts or distorting by wrong or improper emphasis. By distorting. Now, you are deliberately distorting Turang's representation. Let's have some evidence, Mr. Packard. You've got any amount of it. You can look at every paper. Everybody out there looking at this television program knows full well that you, as a group, believe that Turang and I am going to run Turang. Right, that just is not true. Alan Kennedy, would you like to take that up? In the next couple of days, we've got, you know, you're saying Malcolm Fraser, Gough Whitlam, former Prime Ministers, Deputy Prime Ministers are distorting the facts too. I mean, we've got a pub two public rallies in Sydney and Melbourne. Tomorrow we deliver 2,000 letters to the ANZ Bank saying people will close their if account if the bid if goes through. If you can't, using, mean, the John, uh, using the age and the Sydney Morning Herald... No, are they distorting if the you can't, If you can't, using those, get 2,000 letters to give to the bank, you're not trying. No, are they distorting... Now, are they, is it Malcolm Fraser and well, Gough Malcolm Whitlam Malcolm Fraser and Gough Whitlam. I don't really feel that ex-politicians have a lot of say in this. Were they, they changing the, the rules when readers? they were there? Or are they just being smart after the event? Well, aren't they readers and, uh, of the papers? They've expressed they may well be readers of the papers, it. and they may well be on the, under the impression that I will control Turang. But if so, it will be because of the reporting that you have done. Mr Packer, could, could, could I ask you, if Certainly. you won't control uh, Turang, who will? The public. The public will control Turang? The public will control Turang. Uh, uh, the general public? The general uh, public. How will they control Turang? They'll own 65% of the shares. So, and they will, uh, they will certainly own the majority of shares, but will they have control? Well, what, what, they who, can who, vote in or out anyone they like. They own the majority of the shares. That's how directors are appointed. Mr. Surely Pecker, you know that. Mr Pecker, isn't it true that you and Conrad Black got together last year, talked about this issue? I'm taking this from Trevor Kennedy's evidence from the Print Tribunal. There's three versions of this story, but I, I assume Mr Kennedy's got it right. Why You've do you assume he's got it right? 
Well, he was your chief executive. He's appointed as your chief executive to this organisation until he resigned last week. He was You're speaking under he was, oath. He was speaking under oath. Are you saying he was lying? Or I'm was not saying anything. I'm just saying, why do you assume it? I ask you a question, and I'll tell you the answer. Well, his claim is that you met last year. You started discussing with Mr Black uh, the bid. You've been discussing with it for the last eight or nine months. You've approached various financial institutions. This is clearly a, a bid which has been put together by you, you and Mr Black. But nobody's queried that. So you accept that you were the prime movers of the bid? Is that what you're saying? No, no, nobody's ever queried that. So you, you accept the proposition that you are the prime mover of it? I accept the fact that I was involved in helping get the bid going. Right. But after the bid goes in, and surely you must understand the difference, once this company is floated, which it will be within six months of the bid being accepted, it will be owned by the Australian public. Conrad Black will have 20% and I'll have 15 And who will appoint the editors? The public? Presumably the directors. And I'm not eligible to be a director. Before you float, you've got to name your board, don't you? I you've got to put so. a management in place. Well, who's going to appoint the directors of the, uh, for the public float? Well, Sir Zilman Cowan is already there. I presume he'll have something to say about it. Sir Lawrence Street, both of these people, unsatisfactory by your standards, I suppose. Who are they appointed by? They are directors of, of uh, Turang. Yes, but who, who appointed them to the board of Turing? They don't have uh, shares. Conrad Black. So Conrad Black is the controller of the company? At this moment. At this moment. But when it goes public, he won't be. Did and at this moment in time, this is a company that owns nothing. Controlling this company is completely meaningless. Did Conrad Black right, discuss with you? I, I hate to do this, but commercial considerations uh, require that we take a break here. But uh, we'll be back and the debate will continue after this break. And uh, welcome back to the debate where Mr Packer is facing his uh, Fairfax media critics. Now, Mr Packer is clearly not conceding that he's going to have any influence beyond a 14.9% uh, shareholding. What is it that you all fear about Mr Packer? Uh, uh, there's a whole range of things about Turing, but let, uh, let's come back to the point that Mr Packer is merely a passive investor. If that's so, why is Mr Barron, who's an employee of yours, been visiting... Um, Mr. Beasley, the Minister for Communications, who has carriage of responsibility for cross-media ownership, and why has he been in secret discussions with the Australian Broadcasting Tribunal? Has he been in those discussions on your behalf? Is he a, an employee of Turang? Is he an employee of yours? Or is he operating on his own behalf? He's an employee of mine. So, as a passive investor, well, uh, you, your I employee... Mean, you, you deliberately want to misinterpret this thing again. I have said to you, I would have thought clearly, even so you could understand it, that at this stage, while Turang is being put together and before it owns John Fairfax, I have been one of the people involved in the structuring of Turang. After it owns John Fairfax and Sons, I will be a passive investor of 14.9% and have no director. Now, I can't tell you that more clearly. And this is the very thing that I keep on complaining about. You don't want to listen to the facts because it doesn't suit your case. Do you have a record of taking passive investments, Mr. Payne? Do I have a record of taking... Yeah. No, I don't have a record of taking passive investments, but I don't have an opportunity often to buy into John Fairfax and Sons either. This is a company or a company that runs a business that I think to this program, to the, the staff of this program, a year ago you said didn't have a future. In fact, you, you made a big point of it and it was reported in the... Showing what? You said that newspapers didn't have a future. I think the point you're making was about classifieds. And here you are, 12 months later, investing. No, I don't think I ever said that newspapers don't have a future. Well, that was the point you're making. I checked with your staff just beforehand. That was the well, point you was made. Why didn't you check with me? Well, you're here. I'm asking well, you. I'm, and I'm saying to you, I don't think I've ever said that newspapers don't have a future. Now, I'm saying to you the future may not be clear because I don't know what's going to happen. But the idea that newspapers are going to cease in one form or another is not my point of view. My point of view is that it may well be delivered on a printer over a television set. But I don't think they're going to cease to exist. Uh, Mr Pegg, you and Conrad Black have often been, or have been, described as sort of two bulls in one paddock that can't go yeah, on. Yeah. Who described us as that? Uh, Max Walsh, I think, was one. Oh, a commentator. Another intellectual genius. Well, you mightn't like what he said, but um, how durable is the partnership? I would think very durable. I would have thought that, uh, that uh, it's become apparent, hasn't it? that we are prepared to stand up and put this bid together. Now, after that, 
Conrad Black will run the thing, not me. I'm very happy for Conrad Black to run it. I think Conrad Black is a very capable newspaper. Man. What if it doesn't work out? Then I'll sell my shares. It's a listed company. Do you have any sort of agreement as to how that will no work? No agreements at all. None. Why did, why did you look overseas for a, a partner? Why not look in Australia if you who were just interested in setting up... Who are you suggesting? I don't know. I'm asking well, I, you. Well, I'm telling you. Who is there in Australia I should have brought in? Well, there's a, a whole range of who, institutions. Who is the person who has institutions? What do institutions know about running a newspaper, for God's sake? Conrad Black is used to running a quality newspaper. Are you really suggesting there are better partners here to do that than him? If so, name one. If not, withdraw the question. Well, I'm not going to withdraw the question. Good You're idea. saying there is nobody in Australia capable you, of running better? the Fairfax Group. Who is better than Conrad Black at running the, the Fairfax Group? Well, since you asked me, I no. would say the existing management of the uh, Fairfax Group. Well, they're the people who have allowed you to go through and distort the truth in the way that you have. You still haven't proved this point. You've made this How point three I haven't times proved now. it. Everybody out there knows it. Everybody out there has been reading nothing but how I'm going to take over Fairfax's for the last three weeks. I don't have You're to prove it at all. News Limited's distorting the truth too. I mean, these stories appear in News Limited as well. Are they coming out of they distorting the truth too? I, I, would, I would imagine if that's what they're doing, yes. Mm. The in, truth in, of the matter is News Limited don't want Conrad back as a partner either. So this is a massive conspiracy against Kerry Packer, is it? By Channel 7, Channel 10, News Limited, Fairfax? Somehow all these journalists have combined together in a dark room to make up this view. Oh, well, that's your, that's your theory. I don't well, think, no, they, the I don't think it makes that That's way. the point you're really uh, making. No, no. The point I'm making is very simple. You've had a holiday down at Fairfax's for two years. You haven't had a boss. You haven't had anybody who's made you responsible for anything. And now all of a sudden you're saying there's going to be some people come in here and run this place like a newspaper. Well, and we holiday, don't want them. The circulation of the newspapers, all the newspapers in the group have gone up and the company's never been as profitable. It's a pretty good holiday. How do you mean the company's never been as profitable? What money did it make last year as a matter of interest? It's I thought it lost. Well, it loses money because of the debt that Warwick settled well, with, but the operating profit was 127 million. That's the reality of life, is the debt you've got there. Your company is not profitable, it's in receivership. Well, Surely as a journalist you know the difference, are, don't you? I know the difference. I know the difference. These are two of the most profitable newspapers in the world. Rupert Murdoch has said it, Conrad Black has said it. They've said that they're two great newspapers. No, they've talked profitable newspapers. Some people claim yeah, they're look, in the yeah, top uh, five. You know, any time that you've got to go and pay $1.2 billion to get something out of the black, it's not that, out of the red, it's not that profitable. Now, I don't mind what everybody says, and I'm answering your question. Your question is, is there a conspiracy by the age? And by the Sydney Morning Herald? Undoubted. No, no, I said News Limited. All News Limited don't want Conrad Black there as a partner. So you think they're party to it as well? I don't think they're interested in having strong competition. I think they'd much prefer to see you going on the way you are. And Gough Whitlam, Malcolm Fraser, they're a party Gough to it Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser have both been dis dismissed by the Australian public for their past imperfect performances anyway. So they're not uh, entitled at, at to the a view. Moment, of course they're entitled to an opinion. Mm. But so am I entitled to an opinion, mm. and I'm entitled to the truth. And you, as a group, have not represented the truth. Do you agree that you do interfere in your publications? No, I don't. Why did Mr Kennedy say that? I can read I don't the know. Extract. Why don't you ask all the editors? There's plenty of them about. Why well, don't you find out how many times I have interfered? Well, there's plenty of... I can just read you. This is Mr Kennedy under oath at the print media inquiry. From time to time, things went into the bulletin that I probably would have preferred did not go in. Uh, he was asked, do you mean that they went in at his request? That's your request. Yes, he wanted to get them in, and so... They were put into the bulletin. I've got news for you. There's lots of things that go into the bulletin, but I don't want to go in there too. No, that's not the point. I'm saying, well, do you interfere with your publications? By and large, no. Let, let, let me be perfectly clear with you. With my publications, I have the right to find out and see what is going to go into them. Now, I've read, said that the wrong way. In truth, I look at them all in retrospect. I don't look at anything going into the publication. But I will talk to people after the event and say, why have you done this? Why have you done, why has it been handled this way? And the reason I do it is because I want people to be able to test what they can do. Specifically, could I ask you, did you uh, know about the Mrs. Hewson interview before it went to air? Did I know about the Mrs. Hewson story in the Woman's Weekly? The answer is no. In, did you I know didn't about the, know. Uh, the 16 I found minutes. out about the Hewson interview Two days, three days, Monday or Tuesday, whatever day it was. Okay, I, I just warn you that we are unfortunately really running out of time. Just a couple of closing questions, please. 
Mr Packer, do you agree that you come to this sort of bid with close hands, that you've had a record of avoiding regulation? No, I do not. Why did the Broadcasting Tribunal say in June that your scheme with 2UE was a, a deliberate, a flagrant breach of the ownership limits? Well, you know, let's, let's start, let's be very quick about that. I'm the person who sold 2UE. I'm the person who got rid of 2UE. It sat here in this company for four years illegally held and nobody did anything. I'm the one who got rid of it. I didn't make up the scheme. Alan Allen and Hemsley are the people responsible for saying this is the way to handle this till you can sell. So you're, you're right, lawyers. Look, I'm sorry, but I really am going to have to interrupt you. We really are out of time. Um, I do thank you for coming in. Uh, we do thank uh, the Friends of Fairfax spokesman Alan Kennedy, the Sydney Morning Herald's Tom Burton and Ken Davidson of the Melbourne Age. We will be back after the break. Packer was often also the centre of even bigger controversy. One of the earliest incidents occurred on June 7, 1960, when his father was trying to take over the Anglican Press, a small publisher run by Francis James. Now, according to author Richard Neville, Frank Packer was angered by James' refusal to sell the Anglican Press, so he sent Kerry and some burly friends to pressure him into selling. They forced their way in and reportedly began vandalising the premises. But James was able to barricade himself in his office and call Rupert Murdoch, Packer's most powerful rival. Murdoch quickly dispatched his own team of heavies who threw Kerry and friends out. Not surprisingly, the Murdoch press had a field day with the news that the son of Australia's biggest media tycoon had been caught brawling in the street. Like Murdoch, Packer's critics saw his ever-expanding cross-media holdings as a potential threat to media diversity and freedom of speech. He also repeatedly came under fire for his company's alleged involvement in tax evasion schemes and for the extremely low amounts of company tax that his corporations are reported to have paid over the years. He fought repeated battles with the Australian and taxation office over his corporate taxes. However, the worst was yet to come. You see, his most severe legal challenge came in 1984 with the Costican Royal Commission, alleging, using the codename of the Squirrel, renamed the Goanna and Media Reports, that he was involved in tax evasion and organised crime, including drug trafficking. He successfully counterattacked the commission with the assistance of his counsel, Malcolm Turnbull, who also went on to become Prime Minister of Australia. In 1987, the charges were formally dismissed by Attorney General Lionel Bowen. Now, the Costigan Royal Commission, officially titled the Royal Commission on the Activities of the Federated Ship Painters and Dockers Union, was an Australian Royal Commission that was held in the 1980s, not the first and won't be the last. Headed by Frank Costigan QC, the commission was established by the Australian Government on the 10th of September 1980 to investigate criminal activities including violence associated with the Painters and Dockers Union after a series of investigative newspaper articles that detailed a high level of criminality. The union was represented by prominent Melbourne criminal lawyer Frank Gallaby. The commission was seen by many is politically motivated in keeping with a long-running anti-union agenda pursued by the governing party of the day. However, the Painters and Dockers Union was notorious for its criminality and the Costigan Commission investigated numerous crimes including a string of murders, vicious assaults, thuggery, tax fraud networks, drug trafficking syndicates, intimidation and more. Frank Costigan QC found the union since 1971 had a positive policy of recruiting hardened criminals who were essentially outsourced by any dishonest person requiring criminals to carry out his project, end quote. The commission noted 15 murders in which painters and dockers members were either involved in or which the murder was related to union activities. In 1984, the Fairfax newspaper The National Times leaked extracts of the commission's draft report, which implicated a prominent Australian businessman codenamed the Goanna in tax evasion and organised crime, including drug trafficking, pornography and murder. Australia's richest man, media magnate Kerry Packer, revealed himself to be the subject of these allegations, which he strenuously denied. A theory that the late Australian billionaire Kerry Packer made money out of drug trafficking was secretly investigated by the FBI and led to a grand jury being convened in the US. But not even the powerful American law enforcement agency could find any evidence to justify the Costigan Royal Commission's controversial pursuit of Australia's richest man, which sparked the Goanna story and left Packer depressed and, according to some, at risk of suicide. What really kicked things off for the commission was the discovery of concealed drugs in a shipment addressed to Packer during the World Series cricket era that sparked rumour and innuendo about Packer. Packer emphatically denied being a criminal, suggesting the shipment may have been orchestrated by enemies he made of a WSC. The now-defunct National Times newspaper changed Squirrel to Goanna when it published the summaries, which accused the subject of serious crimes ranging from pornography to drug trafficking and maybe even murder. Quote, the Goanna's lifestyle is flamboyant and very expensive, end quote, the National Times reported. While he has considerable assets, it may be doubted whether they are sufficient to provide the cash resources to support his gambling habit and lavish living. The style of living suggests resources beyond those which are 
overt and legitimate. They may be met by provision of money from schemes adumbrated in other relevant activities. Noted with this, but even those would seem unlikely to generate the returns necessary. Newly classified documents from the Federal Bureau of Investigation revealed the extent of the Royal Commission's investigations and how Packer's California-based brother Clyde was also caught up in the drama. They detailed how Clyde Packer, the former nine-head turned New South Wales politician, then expat businessman, had come to the attention of the US Drug Enforcement Agency in 1977 when his phone number was loosely linked to a major heroin distribution conspiracy operating between Los Angeles and Detroit. How his number was linked or got caught up in the drug distribution ring remains unclear. Clyde Packer, who had film and publishing interests in the US, died in California in 2001 and, like his brother, was never charged or convicted of any serious crime. It is unclear whether he even knew about the FBI's interest in him, which extended to claims one of his surfing magazines might have been a front for drug trafficking. The shipment, meanwhile, had been investigated by New South Wales police, who accepted it would have been a highly irregular for Kerry Packer to arrange to have drugs sent to himself. The two cases, containing brass figures and some cricket books, with hashish oil hidden in the walls, were addressed to Packer as the chairman of WSC and originated in Nepal. However, the Royal Commission, set up to probe corruption and organised crime in the Federated Painters and Dockers Union, took another look at the shipment and then decided to pursue Packer, secretly engaging the FBI and US Drug Enforcement Agency. The documents showed the FBI went as far as to hold a grand jury in the US to gather testimony from at least one person whose identity and testimony remains protected. The reason Packer became such a magnet for the commission was a drug shipment, Packer's love of gambling and frequent transfers of large amounts of money, his association with a diverse range of people, the FBI's passing interest in his brother, and finally his investments in Noosa, where an illegal casino a major drug trafficker operated, all this combined to cause an air of suspicion at the Royal Commission. Kerry became a big bullseye target for the Costigan Royal Commission in October of 1983. Over $225,000 he had secured from Surface Paradise property developer tycoon Brian Rick Ray some three years prior. Ray flew to Sydney and gave Packer 50000 in cash. His business partner Ian Beams dropped off payments equally, one 100000 and the other 75000 Packer's answer to this was that he had a bad day at the track and Brian, who was going through bankruptcy proceedings with his creditors at the time, offered to lend him the money. He was then quizzed about why he wanted the money in cash. Packer then made the famous quote, and I quote, I wanted it in cash because I like cash. I have a squirrel-like mentality. Packer said the loan was from his occasional business partner, and I quote, it's not the most amount of cash I've ever had in my life. End quote. Interestingly enough, Ray and his business partner, Ian Beams, were later charged along with others of conspiring to defraud the Commonwealth of $16 million in a so-called bottom-of-the-harbour tax schemes. It became known as the biggest tax evasion scheme in Australian history. Beams pleaded guilty and Ray was acquitted in March of 1987, however sadly died in a plane crash in 2005. The FBI documents show the Royal Commission was also interested in a much larger transaction involving more than $800,000, seemingly sent from Hong Kong to the central National Bank in Cleveland, Ohio. The commission believed the money was originally carried to Hong Kong by Packer or an associate and that foregoing transactions constituted a money laundering operation. It's unknown whether Packer was given an opportunity to respond to these allegations in the Royal Commission. The National Times article prompted Packer to issue an 8,000 word public denial written by his lawyer, current opposition frontbencher Malcolm Turnbull, in which he outed himself as a goanna and declared that the grotesque, ludicrous and malicious allegations had caused him immense suffering. Packer said the allegations had been fueled by his rivals at Fairfax and each and every one of the allegations made against me in the National Times article are false and demonstrably so. It is ex so extraordinary that this disgusting publication should place me in a position where I effectively have to prove my innocence, he said. However, so ludicrous and misconceived are the allegations that my innocence is easily established. End quote. Packer went on to say that Costigan had told him in a private hearing of the Royal Commission that he was not suspected over the drug shipment, but that members of the painters and dockers working as cleaners in his building may have been responsible. As to the allegations of unexplained wealth needed to fund his lifestyle, Packer said about this, and I quote, As anyone knows me would attest to, both my lifestyle and my gambling are well within my means. End quote. The ease with which Packer quashed the claims inevitably tarnished the work of the Royal Commission, not to mention Fairfax, which found itself facing a hefty damages claim. The company later resurrected the National Times for a website boldly including a column titled Goanna. The publicly available volumes of the Commission's 1984 report did not include the same level of detail as in the case summaries, but Costigan took the opportunity to criticise Packer and various leaks. Quote, there were a number of people subject to the Royal Commission's investigations who I feared, if they knew the extent, would seek to frustrate them, he replied. 
reported. Mr. Packer is one such person. In the course of my investigations, I am satisfied he caused documents to be removed from the jurisdiction so as to deny them to me. End quote. The three confidential volumes of the report, which remain sealed, were transferred to the new National Crime Authority, the Australian Federal Police, and the New South Wales and Queensland Police to investigate various matters, some involving Packer. A coronial inquest into the supposed murder of Queensland Bank Manager Ian Percival Coote, an associate of Ray, supported the original police finding of suicide. Charges were laid against various other people investigated by the Royal Commission, although some matters meant to be handled by Queensland Police came to the attention of the state's Fitzgerald inquiry, which uncovered widespread corruption in the 1980s. The only other matter to emerge from investigations into Packer related to allegations of tax evasion. A brief of evidence went to the then Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions, Ian Temby QC, who sought the advice of two independent barristers before dropping the case. The Attorney General sought to comprehensively respond to the allegations in an effort to end the Goanna drama once and for all. First, an incalculable damage has been done to Mr. Packer, said Bowen. Second, there is no basis to justify any charges being brought against him. Third, he is entitled to be regarded by his fellow citizens as unsullied by the allegations and insinuations which have been made against him. End quote. Packer in turn reiterated his long-standing position on the trumped-up charges and said, and I quote, a very unhappy chapter in my life and my family's life is now closed. End quote. Yet, the newly released documents show that almost a decade after the Royal Commission wrapped up, the FBI relayed its conspiracy theory about Packer to the New South Wales Casino Control Authority as it conducted probury checks on the consortia bidding for what is now Sydney Star Casino. Quote, Inquiries conducted by the Royal Commission at that time had determined definite involvement by Kerry and the others in financial transactions which were fraudulently represented to the Australian government with a basis for tax evasion in Australia and had the appearance to the Royal Commission investigators as being laundered money resulting from drug transactions. End quote. The FBI reported this back to Australia in March of 1994. Kerry Packer, a prominent business figure, was chairman of directors of Consolidated Press PTY, a media conglomerate which includes the Nine Network, considered the most successful commercial TV network in Australia. CPP also owns the Noosa International Hotel in the state of Queensland. The hotel is considered by the Royal Commission to be a major cocaine distribution point for the country. The FBI's disclosure to the Casino Control Authority, not supported by any evidence, mind you, came despite the Royal Commission having asked for the matter to be dealt with discreetly as Kerry Packer is very well-known business figure in Australia. Packer's consortium failed to win the casino license that went to the Sydney Harbour Casino Consortium of Lightenden's Showboat, but later went on to establish the successful Crown Gaming Empire. The FBI documents shed new light on a drama that involved and engaged the nation's business law enforcement, media, and political elite. The documents at the time could only be declassified and provided to the Weekend Australian following a Freedom of Information application submitted a year before because Kerry and Clyde Packer had died. The Weekend Australian also put forward the names of a dozen other prominent deceased Australians, but the FBI either never had or no longer kept information pertaining to them on file. Philip Adams, a columnist with the Weekend Australian magazine and also an ABC radio presenter, said he was friends with Packer through the Goanna scandal and, like others, feared Packer might contemplate suicide. Adams said he privately put the allegations to Packer, who tearfully rejected them, devastated by the impact on the family name and desolated by the fact he'd been deserted by his political mates at the time. Adams had been trying to convince Packer to establish Australia's largest charitable foundation, which he seemed inclined to do, but the Royal Commission put paid to that. He became so antisocial because of the way society had treated him, Adams said. That was another consequence of Costigan, but we never got the Packer Foundation. The counsel assisting the Royal Commission, Doug Menger QC, told The Weekend Australian he regretted that the Royal Commission had been required to produce case summaries that could be leaked or misused by others. Notwithstanding, I had confided everything, saying that I'd let the incoming people know who the codes referred to. Once you described the defences you were investigating, it was pretty obvious, he said. Now, while I think that Packer was involved in some behind-the-scenes shenanigans, such as figuring out easy ways to pay as little tax as possible, I don't see Packer as someone who'd be involved so publicly in organised crime. For someone like him who's so high profile, the risk would be too great if it is found that he had any connections to crime in any way. The fallout, for example, would be the total collapse of his empire because the police, finance company and auditors would run through everything to try and bring him down to find something they could use. They would also use the proceeds of Crime Act to seize anything they thought was bought using money that was made committing crimes, such as drug dealing. Having a spotlight placed on you was never a good thing, especially if you had to hide things, which I'm sure Packer did. Notwithstanding the significant efforts made to preserve his security and privacy, Packer suffered two mysterious break-ins at his company headquarters in Park Street, Sydney that have never 
ever been solved. The first of which was in 1995, 25 gold bars weighing a total of 285 kilograms or 628 pounds and a Vegemite jar full of gold nuggets were stolen from Packer's personal safe. Adam Shan did a podcast series titled Packer's Gold. When clerical staff arrived at the third floor executive suite at the heart of billionaire Mr. Packer's business empire on the morning of May 1st of 1995, they discovered the two doors leading to his personal secretary's office opened at the push of a hand. Indentations showed the doors had been prized open with either a crowbar or a screwdriver and carefully closed again afterwards. Inside Mr. Packer's private office was a scorch mark in the carpet about 10 centimeters from the large drinks cabinet which held the thieves' target, his old 1940s chub safe that was hidden behind a drinks cabinet. It had belonged to his late father Sir Frank and had held 5.4 million in gold bullion weighing 285 kilograms, a jar containing scrap gold such as nuggets and gold wire, and a gold and silver necklace. The gold today, in today's money, is worth around $12.5 million. Police knew the thief had to have had inside information because the safe was a secret. We interviewed all the accountants and no one knew about this gold except for his current personal secretary, a former detective stated. The safe was locked on the inside by a steel bar about one inch wide. If the bar was cut, the safe would open. The thief cut only one hole right in the middle and exactly where the bar could be opened. None of the security alarms had gone off overnight, but the safe had been emptied regardless. On closer examination, police discovered a lone fingerprint found inside. This gave police what they thought was their first major breakthrough as they hunted what they believed was a gang behind the break-in at the Australian Consolidated Press building in Sydney's Park Street. The fingerprint was traced on the police database to a relatively minor crook from South Australia. After putting the South Australian man under surveillance, they pulled him in and discovered he had worked as a safe mechanic on Packer's safe some years prior. The other thing in his favour was his mother being deeply religious and as part of her faith kept a detailed diary of everyday events. So because of this, she recorded his whereabouts and thus the safe mechanic had an ironclad alibi. He was then ruled out. We then come to the master criminal known as Mr. X. He became the next suspect police took a look at. Mr. X was so good that although police knew it had to be him, he never gave them an inch. Despite hundreds of hours of surveillance, he was never even arrested. The security system at Park Street was old and outdated and police believed it would have been easy for an experienced hand like this suspect to shut it down. But the big question was, how did he get past the private security guards on duty? Well, sometime later as I understand it, a security guard who by then had left the company went to police and claimed that it was common for the guards to spend much of their shift in the gym and pool or playing squash at the Hyde Park Club, which was part of the Packer complex and part of the area they were charged with keeping secure. Everything led to a dead end and it wasn't until we found out from the ex-security guard who came in and told us what went on there that we realised the suspect wouldn't have needed to have a security guard on the inside if he knew that they would not be there at the time, a former detective sergeant stated. Now, see, that's what's amazing to me is you you pay for all of this security and they just basically take off and go and, you know, either play pool or squash or just go and enjoy themselves on the company's dime. I mean, you know, you could have anything going on inside of your building and you wouldn't even know it because the security guards are all over at the Hyde Park complex, you know, just enjoying themselves on the company's dime. I mean, what kind of lax security is that? I mean, you know, you'd hate for something bad to happen inside of your company, wouldn't you? Which is what inevitably happened. So police pulled over Mr. X at one point to rattle his cage, and as they had no way to prove he'd stolen the gold, except for the good old police gut feeling, which in my experience is really ever wrong. Sergeant Youngblood stopped the suspect by the side of the road and tried to get him to give something away. Quote, I had a conversation with him. He was very guarded didn't say anything. I just happened to say to him, well, Mr. X, have a happy Christmas. We might be talking to you later. And he looked at me and said, that's up to you whether I have a happy Christmas or not. And sort of looked at me and straight away I knew he was letting me know that I knew that it was him. That's as close as I got because he just suddenly went quiet. The telephone conversation stopped. Everything stopped. I suppose he got even more paranoid and he just ceased all activity. End quote. Mr. X, police believe, strolled into Mr. Packer's Australian Consolidated Press building at 54 Park Street and jimmied the open two doors with a crowbar or screwdriver. With exemplary skill, he brushed straight through the 1940s chub safe in what experts suspect was no more than 10 minutes. The only sign that the safe had been robbed was a small burn mark from where a charred piece of burned metal had hit blood red carpet. Mr. X was originally thought to have used a thermal lance, but expert Mark Irvine, who examined the safe in 1995, believes that it had to be a small torch powered by by burning oxyadiline gas. He then had to empty 283 kilos of gold bars out of the safe and make off with them single-handedly. Police believe he did this by wheeling them on a handcart to a nearby service lift that led to a loading dock where only Mr. Packer parked and was empty on weekends. He then loaded them into the back of his trusty white ute and simply drove away. Detectives initially thought it must have been an inside job as it was too much he would have needed to know without an inside man. Police had evidence that their suspect regularly visited Miss Wheatley who had been the media mogul's private secretary for 18 years and was known affectionately 
affectionately as the perfumed bulldozer. They believed he was sleeping with Mr. Packer's longtime former secretary, Pat Wheatley, who lived near his $1 million flat in Woolera in Sydney's east. Miss Wheatley either let slip the details of the gold safe and pillow talk or deliberately told him to get revenge for being sacked after 18 years when her drinking problem was discovered. The former political staffer was so good at keeping her boss's secrets, she gave nothing away when questioned by police. She always talked to them alongside her lawyer, Malcolm Turnbull, who, as I said earlier, would two decades later become Australia's 29th Prime Minister. Mr. X's skill was the reason police gravitated towards him in the first place. He was one of the top three men in the country and one of the few who could pull off the heist. Mr. X had not been arrested since the 1970s when he was unknowingly in the background of an incriminating photo. He had two other convictions from the previous decade when he would have been in his 20s. In 1964, he stole 14,000 pounds of cultured pills from the Japanese Trade Center in Pitt Street, Sydney, and did two years for stealing 41,000 from an ESNA bank in 1967. Mr. X sold his flat in 2013 while aged in his 70s and has since disappeared from public and police view. It is unknown today if he's dead or alive. There was never any suggestion she had anything to do with the theft, but police believed that the crook had ingratiated himself with her. He was known as a real loner except for women and had been having an affair with a female owner of a prominent Sydney restaurant around the same time. Police put him under watch, but he was a master at counter-surveillance. He worked out on a bench press at home, perhaps one of the ways he was able to move the 285 kilos of gold by himself onto the trolley, which he is believed to have used to roll it into a van at the loading dock and simply drive away. His usual vehicle was a Ford Falcon U. The robbery is still officially unsolved, but Mr. Packer got back the five million from his insurance company. The other alluring fact and mystery about this case was the fact that Kerry Packer may well have known Mr. X, master criminal, who has been alleged robbed him of his gold. They apparently even dined at the same restaurants at the same time at different tables, but the two men never acknowledged each other. A detective who worked on the case admitted, and I quote, Mr. Packer was well aware of our inquiries and our major suspect. End quote. Now the case gets more intriguing the deeper you dig into it because legendary restaurateur Giovina Topi knew both of the men who frequented her restaurants at La Strada at Potts Point and Marchavelli in the city. She knew Mr. Packer as one of her best customers and the stocky career safecracker as a good friend of her late husband Walter. But Miss Toppy 78 said she had no idea how her husband's friend made a living. For at least some of the time that the two men circled each other, police believed the master crook was having a secret affair with Mr. Packer's former secretary, Pat Wheatley. When Miss Wheatley died in 2008, age 64, she left property worth around 2.5 million, including an Art Deco Boulevard Hill apartment with harbour views and her Boral home, which had three bedrooms, three en-suites and a tennis court. She had sold her other eastern suburb units before moving to Boral. The criminal suspect, now 74, lived nearby and police conducting surveillance saw them visiting each other around the time of the theft. However, he was well known to police not only as the country's top safecracker, but also as a ladies' man. Although he was short in stature, he told detectives during his one and only arrest in the 1970s for breaking into the Chubb safe factory in Waterloo that he had a distinctive tattoo on his penis, the initials B and E, or possibly the entire phrase breaking and entering. Detectives revealed the identity of their suspect to Mr. Packer during an expletive-filled meeting in the months after the theft. They were summer summoned to Mr. Packer's office after he heard that one section of the media was planning to write a totally ridiculous account of the gold theft with a scenario police had totally discounted. The story had come from a prisoner serving a sentence for drug dealing. It was then that detectives told him the identity of their major suspect. Someone who used to dine with Mr. Packer at La Strada had confirmed that the media tycoon knew that the fellow diner was a top safecracker, but said Mr. Packer had never confided that the man was behind the theft of his gold. Detectives had information that the bullion was taken to Melbourne where it was melted down and that the doctor turned crime figure, the late Dr. Nick Peltos, was involved through contacts he had in Melbourne. Dr. Peltos, who did time in jail for smuggling $45 million worth of cannabis into Australia and for perverting the course of justice, had spent 12 years as superintendent of the casualty department at Sydney Hospital. When he took up private practice in Woolloomooloo, Kerry Packer was one of his patients. Mr. Packer died in 2005. Lestrada has since closed its doors in Maclay Street, Potts Point. For some time while he was still under surveillance, police followed the safecracker to Machiavelli most days. He now appears to have slipped back under the radar, which is how he has lived most of his life. No one has been charged over the theft of the gold, and it has never been found. Look, I mean, look, I'm convinced based on all the evidence I've seen and read that this was not only an inside job, but the Packer was somehow mixed up in it, if for no other reason that the safe that he'd been using had only been guaranteed for up to $20,000, meaning that the contents in the safe was only insured for that amount. Somehow, Packer had put $5 million in that safe, and he was somehow able to convince the insurance company to pay him out the full $5 million, which shouldn't have happened as the safe wasn't insured for that much. How Packer was able to do this and convince the finance company to give him that money remains a perplexing 
mystery and an unanswered question. We then move on to the second mysterious break-in, that being in 2003, a licensed Glock 9mm semi-automatic pistol was stolen from a desk drawer on the executive level. Now, what was interesting about this Glock pistol going missing from Packer's office was that the Office of Publishing and Broadcasting LTD in Park Street was the same office in which 5 million gold was taken from his office safe. Security in this building was at best lax and at worst totally non-existent and laughable. A very odd aspect about this case was that a male cleaner who'd entered the building about 9pm was confronted by a man and a woman who were both carrying firearms. The cleaner was tied up and the premises was ransacked. It remains unclear if police ever followed up this line of inquiry and to my knowledge these people were never found or identified. To this day their whereabouts remain unknown. Police would also not comment on reports that the security cameras and sensor lights had been disabled or whether there were any suspects. The pistol in question was the same type police were issued with at that time. To this day my understanding is that has also never been located. The other interesting fact is that New South Wales is one of the most strict states in Australia when it comes to gun laws. For example you can't even own a replica firearm under New South Wales law. The other thing is licenses for Glocks are granted only to people who can demonstrate a specific need such as those working in security, sporting shooters can also obtain one once they are a member of a gun club. Why Kerry had the gun in his desk draw the way it was and if he was the only one to use it in the first place remains an interesting question, one that again has never really been answered. Police confirmed that Mr. Packett handed in his B-class handgun owner's license and decided against renewing the license because the licensing detectives are waiting for advice from the police legal services branch on whether he should be prosecuted for failing to properly secure the weapon. By law, the gun should have been in a safe. This was during the time that John Howard, a well-known gun control advocate, was the Prime Minister, who's well-known for the controversial and draconian National Firearms Agreement signed into law at his behest and suggestion after the Port Arthur Massacre in 1996, committed allegedly by Martin Bryant. In another interesting twist of fate, Packer was not charged with failing to keep the gun in a gun safe or storage, whereas others would have been, Packer was able to slip out of the clutches of the law yet again. There was also the story of how someone whose identity remains unknown to this day made a phone call stating that Mr. Packer wanted a Lamborghini for the day, and so the company drove one over, the guy jumped into the car and said thanks, took off, and neither him or the car was ever seen again. To this day, this incident also remains unsolved. Packer also got into a lot of heat over the, the sports boycott of, a, of the apartheid South Africa, which prevented South African sportsmen from representing their country when he recruited a number of South African cricketers to play on his World Series cricket team. His timing was criticised coming just months after the Soweto riots and the death of Steve Biko, murdered by members of the South African security forces. Packer also got into a lot of hot water over his handling of the World Series of Cricket debacle that it eventually turned into. Packer was famously quoted from a 1976 meeting with the Australian Cricket Board, with whom he met to negotiate the rights to televise cricket. According to witnesses who was there, he said, and I quote, there's a little bit of a whore in all of us gentlemen, what is your price? End quote. Determined to get some cricket on Channel 9, Packer put an offer to the Test and Country Cricket Board, TCCB, to telecast the Australian Tour of England scheduled for 1977. His interest was further stimulated by a proposal to play some televised exhibition matches, an idea presented to him by Western Australian businessman John Cornell and Austin Robinson. Robinson managed several high-profile Australian cricketers such as Dennis Lilly, while Cornell was Paul Hogan's business manager and on-screen sidekick. Packer took this idea, then fleshed it out into a full series between the best Australian players and a team from the rest of the world. His mistrust of cricket administrators deepened when the ACB recommended the TCCB accept an offer for their broadcast rights from the ABC, even though ABC $210,000 offer was only 14% of the offer from Packer. Packer's planning of the proposed exhibition series was audacious. In early of 1977, he began contracting a list of Australian players provided by recently retired Australian Test Captain Ian Chappell. A bigger coup was achieved when Packer convinced the England Captain Tony Gregg to not only sign on, but to act as an agent in signing many players around the world. By the time the season climaxed with the centenary Test match between Australia and England at the Melbourne Cricket Ground in March of 1977, about two dozen players had committed to Packers Enterprise, which as yet had no grounds to play on, no administration, and was secret to all in the cricket world. It was a measure of the players' dissatisfaction with official cricket that they were prepared to sign up for what was still a vague concept and yet kept everything covert. By the time the Australian team arrived to tour England in May of 1977, 13 of the 17 members of the squad had committed to Packer. News of the WSC plans were inadvertently leaked to Australian journalists who broke the story on May 9th. Immediately, all hell broke loose in the hitherto conservative world of cricket. Not unexpectedly, the English were critical of what they quickly dubbed the Packer Circus and reserved particular vitriol for the English captain Tony Gregg for his central role in organising the breakaway. Gregg retained his position in the team but was stripped of the captaincy and ostracised by everyone in the cricket establishment, most of whom had been singing his praises.
phases just weeks before. It seems certain that all Packer players would be banned from Test and First Class Cricket. The Australian players were a divided group and the management made their displeasure clear to the Packer signees. Dispirited by this turn of events and hampered by poor form and indifferent weather, Australia crashed to a 3-0 defeat, surrendering the Ashes one two years before. In light of the controversy, the Sydney Gazette article clearly showed West Indian captain Clive Lloyd interviewed after leaving the Caribbean team to join Packer. Lloyd stated it was nothing personal, it was clearly earning a more comfortable source of income. That interview created waves across the Caribbean and even in world cricket. It was then realised that the sport had been transferred into what transformed into one's livelihood. A largely unknown Kiri Packer arrived in London in late May of 1977. He appeared on David Frost's The Frost Program to debate his concept with commentators Jim Larker and Robin Marler. Marler's aggressive, indignant interrogation of Packer came unstuck when Packer proved to be articulate, witty, and confident that his vision was the way of the future. The show significantly raised Packer's profile and converted some to his way of thinking. The main goal of his trip was to meet the game's authorities and reach some type of compromise. He made a canny move by securing Richie Bernard as a consultant. Bernard's standing in the game and his journalistic background helped steer Packer through the politics of the game. Things went to hell very quickly after this when Packer made a very incendiary speech after meeting with the ICC, the International Cricket Conference. Cricket's world governing body, the International Cricket Conference, ICC, now entered a controversy initially perceived as an Australian domestic problem. They met with Packer, Bernard and two assistants at Lords on the 23rd of June to discuss the WSC plans. After 90 minutes of compromise from both sides had almost created common ground, Packer demanded that the ICC award him the exclusive Australian television rights after the 1978-79 season ended. It wasn't in the power of the ICC to do so and Packer stormed from the meeting to deliver the following unadulterated declaration of war. Quote, Had I got those TV rights, I was prepared to withdraw from the scene and leave the running of cricket to the board. I will take no steps now to help anyone. It's every man for himself and the devil take the hindmost. End quote. Packer made a big mistake going down this road and it nearly cost him very dearly. This outburst undid any goodwill that Packer had created during his earlier television appearance and alarmed his contracted players who had viewed his scheme as being philanthropic and as commercial. The ICC decided to treat Packer's scheme with contempt when a month later they decided Packer's matches would not be given first class status and the players involved would be banned from test match and first class cricket. A number of the signed players now considered withdrawing. Jeff Thompson and Elvin Klatrick had their contracts torn up when it was discovered that they had bidding agreements with a radio station requiring them to play for Queensland. Packer moved quickly to shore up support, meeting with the players and taking legal action to prevent third parties from inducing players to break their contracts. To clarify the legal implications, including the proposed bans, Packer backed a challenge to the TCCB in the High Court by three of his players, Tony Gregg, Mike Proctor and John Snow. The case began on the 26th of September 1977 and lasted seven weeks. The Cricket's Authorities Council said that if the top players deserted traditional cricket, then gate receipts would decline. Mr. Packer's lawyer stated that the ICC had tried to force the Packer players to break their contracts and to prevent others from joining them. Justice Slade, in his judgment, said the professional cricketers need to make a living and the ICC should not stand in their way just because its own interests might be damaged. He said the ICC might have stretched the concept of loyalty a little bit too far. Players could not be criticised for entering the contracts in secrecy as the main authorities would deny the players the opportunity to enjoy the advantages offered by WSC. The decision was a blow to the cricket authorities and adding insult to injury, they had to pay court costs. English county cricket teams were pleased as their players who had signed to play for Packer were still eligible to play for them. At one point, Packer demonstrated his political clout by getting New South Wales Premier Neville Rand to overturn the ban on WSC and allow matches to be played at the traditional home of the game, the Sydney Cricket Ground, SGC. To boot, Rand had his government foot the bill to install lights good enough for Packer to use. In June 2009, the Sydney Morning Herald reported that former Federal Opposition's leader and subsequently an Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, a former legal advisor and business associate of Packer revealed to journalist Annabelle Crabb that Packer had threatened to have him killed when they fell out over their 1991 attempt to take over the Fairfax newspaper group through their Turan consortium. Packer reportedly made the threat after Turnbull told Packer he was going to have him thrown out of the consortium by revealing Packer's intention to play an interventionist role in the newspaper group. Quote, he told me he'd kill me. Yeah, I didn't think he was completely serious, but I didn't think he was entirely joking either. Look, he could be pretty scary. He did threaten to kill me, and I said to him, well, you better make sure that your assassins gets me first because if he misses you better know I won't miss you. He could be a complete pig you know. He could charm the birds out of the trees but he could be a brute. End quote. 
Kerry Packer died of kidney failure on the 26th of December 2005, nine days after his 86th birthday at home in Sydney, Australia, with his family by his bedside. Knowing that his health was failing, he instructed his doctors not to treat him with curative intent or artificially prolonging his life with dialysis. He told his cardiologist earlier in the week that he was running out of petrol and wanted to die with dignity. His private funeral service was held on the 30th of December 2005 at the family's country estate, Alliston near Scone in the Hunter region. Having obtained council permission, he was buried on the Alliston property near the polo field. The Packer family accepted an offer of a state memorial service which was held on the 17th of February 2006 at the Sydney Opera House. The granting of this taxpayer-funded honour was criticised by some members of the community as Packer was famous for his alleged tax minimisation schemes. Which I find this quite ironic, that a guy who paid minimal taxes and was suspected of evading having to pay his own operate corporate taxes for his business empire had his state funeral paid for from taxpayers' money, and it's no wonder people were in an uproar over that. It's like someone robbing a bank and then the judge acquitting you and saying, here's all the money back that you took. At Packer's televised state memorial service in 2006, his son James told mourners his father had never forgiven Costigan for the slurs, and nor could we. An unrepentant Costigan responded by saying he had no obligation to, and I quote, investigate without fear or favour, no matter how wealthy a person may be, or how influential he is, and report his findings to the government. Costigan died in 2009. So what happened to the major players in this case? Mr. X, the man police believed was responsible for the unsolved robbery, disappeared from the public eye and has kept a low profile ever since. To this day, police don't know his current location and his whereabouts remain unknown. Kiri Packer died from kidney failure in 2005. Clyde Packer died in 2001 of lung failure. Pat Wheatley's Packer's personal secretary died of cancer. Ron Bryan died in a plane crash in 2005. Frank Costigan died in 2009. Ian Beam, Ron's business partner's whereabouts to this day remain unknown. And with that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Question. Conspiracy theories about the death of Adolf Hitler, dictator of Germany from 1933 to 1945, contradict the accepted fact that he committed suicide in the Führer bunker on the 30th of April 1945. Stemming from Soviet disinformation, most of these theories hold that Hitler and his wife Eva Braun survived and escaped from Berlin, with some asserting that he went to South America. 